Morning. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for uh, coming, bearing the cold. When you complain about the cold, when I complain about the cold, and particularly on the Lord's Day, uh, I remember a story of John G. Payton's father, uh, north of Scotland, lived four miles away from church and walked every Lord's Day. And his, in his entire life, he missed two Sundays. And he, morning and evening, I'm talking about. So, suck it up. <clears throat> right? That's the message, isn't it? Um, it's cold, but hey, we're, we're warm now, right? Well, we continue our study of the hymns of the faith this morning, and we are going to look at a wonderful hymn that some of us probably remember the tune very well. I don't know how well you're familiar with the, with the hymn itself. Lord, with glowing heart, I'd praise thee. It's number 80 in the hymnal. You can look there. We're going to sing it eventually, uh, but you can look there. But I'll have a lot of you know the verses on display for us. Well, let me open us up with prayer before we uh, investigate this hymn. <clears throat> Gracious Father, we come into your presence thankful for the new day, and we know that your mercies are new every morning. We don't take that for granted. We bless you for your steadfast love that never ceases. We thank you for the love that has awakened our souls to know Christ and to see Him in His goodness and to come to Him for cleansing. And Lord, we pray that You would encourage our hearts with the words of this particular hymn as they seek to praise You. Help us to understand better how what we sing is rooted in Your Word. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, as we come to look at this hymn, uh, we'll, as per usual, we'll talk about the hymn writer, a little bit about the tune, but then really focus our attention chiefly on the hymn itself. So this one is really interesting. The hymn writer is a guy named Francis Scott Key, born in 1779, died 1843. He was a prominent lawyer in uh, Washington, D.C. He was actually a district attorney for a season in Washington, D.C. Uh, and then he was an amateur poet. You may think of him as more than an amateur, uh, but he was an amateur poet. If you haven't already figured this out, <clears throat> this guy is most well known for the Star-Spangled Banner. Uh, what we sing as our national anthem actually has a lot more verses than what we, we just sing the one. I'll come back to that shortly. Um, but he's famous for this. You probably know almost nothing else about him other than he wrote this. So let me tell you just because it's a connection to us, <clears throat> uh, the origin of the Star-Spangled Banner itself. Uh, Key was an American agent for prisoners of war. He's a lawyer, right? So in the War of 1812, <clears throat> he is sent with Colonel Skinner uh, among the British who are in Baltimore, and he actually dines on a particular ship, the Tonnet, to plead for the release prisoner. And while he's there to plead for the release, they're going to grant him the release of the prisoner, but they won't let him go back to the American lines. He's seen the, the British ship positions, so they're going to keep him there. And therefore, he saw the 25-hour bombardment of Fort McHenry there in Baltimore. And at dawn, after this bombardment, he sees the flag still flying, and he immediately started pinning a poem which he called uh, Defense of Fort McHenry. Uh, and then and I, I left the C out because it wasn't in his original, by the way. It's altered spelling. 
I did anglicize, well, Americanized defense. They would have spelled it with a C, still British spelling. Uh, but it was published a week later. It's actually quite a mystery about how it got published because he's scribbling it down on something he had in his pocket and he put it in his pocket. And somehow, within a week, uh, is published in a newspaper. It's put to a popular tune, a tune that people knew at the time um, that we would have no idea what that is, but they knew the tune. Uh, and it eventually, of course, became our national anthem. That's really all I'm going to talk about, the national anthem connection. Uh, who is Francis Scott Key? What do we want to know about him as a man? Well, he was a devout Episcopalian. He was a strong believer in the doctrines of grace, uh, what a lot, a lot of people will call Calvinistic uh, views of salvation. Uh, that will be evident in the hymn in a minute. But it's interesting how devout he was as an Episcopalian in the midst of the tides of rising Unitarianism. Some of you will faintly remember we did a study on Machen and did a lot of history stuff, and Unitarianism is a rising problem in the late uh, 1700s, early 1800s. You know, you've got people like uh, Thomas Paine who wrote Common Sense, is an avowed atheist. You have other folks who are moving away from uh, a commitment to the things of the Lord. And, you know, we've got deists and we've got this, Unitarianism, a belief that there's some God, there's a God of some sort, certainly not focused on Christ, Jesus Christ, as though He is God, doesn't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit as a divine person, rejects those categories. And Unitarianism can mean almost anything you want it to mean. So it's really become... Um, a mass of all kinds of teaching that will develop over time. <clears throat> but Francis Scott Key is not in that category, even though it was a growing problem in the circles of the day. Uh, he labored to establish two different seminaries. He served as a Sunday school teacher. He was a lector. If we're not familiar with Episcopalian ways of doing things, which most of us probably aren't, something like what we would call, if you grew up Methodist, a lay preacher. Um, he's not ordained. He's not serving as an officer. But nevertheless, he, he might do a public reading in the worship service of a church. He visited the sick. He organized a, a domestic and a foreign missionary society. And then he wrote several hymns which were set to tunes by others. He, he wasn't musical in order to be writing his own tunes. His poems were collected and published after his death. Uh, so the publication is 1857. Uh, and then, Lord with glowing heart I'd praise thee was written in 1817. So just a, a few, three years roughly after his other famous song that we know. Uh, it was published, so far as we know, first in 1823. And then it started becoming a staple of hymns, I mean, in hymn books. It's hard to know how many hymn books this was in. Uh, today, you really don't find it very often. I would say probably 10 hymnals have it. Uh, so it's, it's rare. It's wonderful that we have it in our hymnal. It's the only hymn by him, by Scott Key, that we have in our hymn book. Just a, a word about the tune. It's the tune Ripley, uh, and we'll hear this in a minute, but we come back to a, a guy we've talked about before, Lowell Mason, uh, born in 1792. He's a, he's a Yankee. Uh, he's from kind of the Massachusetts area. 
uh, he travels down south, uh, and he will be called towards the end of his career and after his death, uh, the father of American or maybe even the father of Protestant church music. Um, he, had a, he did a lot of work in music education and the direction of music in churches, including his stint at Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah. That was very early in his career, in the 1820s and 30s. I think he might have stopped about 1827 or so. So he was there for a season. Um, this guy is striking just because of his ability to either write tunes or arrange tunes. And these are a collection of the tunes we know by him. These are not the tune names. But in the Trinity Hymnal, in the back of the hymnal, there's a spot where you can look up authors or composers, uh, arrangers of the tunes. And 28 times Lowell Mason's name comes up in our hymnal. Uh, Joy the World, Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. He actually wrote that tune. When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, he wrote that tune. It's called Hamburg. And that's probably the most prominent tune that he wrote. Uh, he did a setting of There's a Fountain Filled with Blood, uh, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds, My Faith Looks Up to Thee, and then Ripley, uh, which we sing to a couple of different hymns in our hymn book. Now, back to uh, Frank Key, which is what his friends called him. Uh, <clears throat> he was known in his family as a pious person from his earliest days. When you try to figure out when was he converted, my answer is, I have no idea. Um, it seems as though he never knew a day when he didn't love the Lord Jesus Christ and serve him. But his hymn, this one in particular, it makes it very clear that he well understood a time when he was not a believer. As he, he, he grasped the concept of there is a period of darkness from which I'm, I've been rescued. How long that was for him, we don't know. But he understands how the gospel works, that he was lost and he was found, he was blind and he was made to see. And he'll use some of that similar imagery in the hymn as we unpack it. <clears throat> uh, Lord, with glowing heart, I praise thee was written when he was in his late 30s. Seven of his 11 children had been born by this point should strike you that he has 11 children, or maybe more strikingly, he has 11 children that survived, uh, which is very rare. Um, and one wife who bore them all, which is also very rare. So that's a striking providence in his life. And I, I mentioned that about his children because I think we can see something about his piety. Uh, he'll write to his children later in life, um, and I'll read that quote in a second. We can tell how godly he was because there was a focus in his letters and in his uh, arguments, legal arguments, about how he would lace them with Scripture. And so he used the Bible regularly in his ongoing correspondence that was most personal, and then his profession, he spoke of Scripture. But he wrote to his children later in life, Read your Bibles every morning and evening. Never neglect private prayers both morning and evening. And throughout the day, strive to think on God often and breathe a sincere supplication to Him for all things. Go regularly to church. Do everything for God's sake and consider yourselves always in His service. 
That's the kind of man we're talking about. Um, private means of grace, public means of grace, pushing his family to rest upon the Lord and the Lord alone, to have a sense of consecration that everything that you do is to be done to the Lord, which is another way to say that what is our chief end? Uh, this is coming up in Sunday school class pretty soon. Uh, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And you get a sense of that in Him, even though He's not a Presbyterian. I, I would dare, I would dare say, knowing the climate of these kinds of Episcopalians, that he probably had contact with men at Princeton Seminary, where some Episcopalians went to be trained, and doctrinally, with respect to the doctrine of salvation, they they all embraced the same stuff. It's just their understanding of church was a little different. I, I put this old stamp up here because you see this phrase, and this be our motto: "In God is our trust." Uh, you you will know on your money. There's a phrase in God we trust. That's Francis Scott Key. So in in the various verses he wrote for the defense of Fort McHenry, I think it's verse four that uses that line. And this be our motto: In God is our trust. And then that was adopted and put on our money, uh, and obviously put on this stamp, a four cent stamp. By the way, I tried to look up when we had four cent stamps. Uh, it was it's a little confusing because it was at various times depending on the kind of postage you were seeking, but it wasn't as long ago as I thought. So, yeah, it was in the it was definitely in the 20th century. Okay, the hymn itself, the meat of what we want to consider. <clears throat> Let me read the verse and then we'll kind of unpack. Lord, this is a prayer. Lord, with glowing heart, I'd praise Thee. I would praise Thee. For the bliss Thy love bestows. For the pardoning grace that saves me. And the peace that from it flows. Help, O God, my weak endeavor. This dull soul to rapture raise. Thou must light the flame or never. Can my love be warmed to praise? That is great poetry and so theologically sound. So let's, let's look a bit at what he's communicating to us. <clears throat> I want you to note this phrase, with glowing heart. Can't you picture that? Isn't that such a, a, a word painting for us that your heart is, is in essence, on fire? And, and yet he's recognizing um, I would do this, but I need you to do something. Before we get to the what we need the Lord to do, notice how this is connected to scriptural thinking. Uh, Psalm 9, verse 1, I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I, I want to be all in. I want to be totally invested. <clears throat> Romans 12, 1, uh, present your bodies as a living sacrifice and then Paul will go on to talk about um, as those who've been saved, we're required to do certain things. Let love be genuine is kind of how he starts. And in the midst of telling us all these things that we should be doing, he mentions this little phrase, uh, burning in spirit. Burning in spirit. I'm trying to remember how the ESV translates it. It's something to do with, um, I think it's zeal. Something to do with zeal. Somebody can look it up and, and tell me because I, I forgot to look uh, again this morning and I've already forgotten. But 
burning in your spirit. Maybe it's not slothful in spirit, it's the sense, but it's really on fire. Uh, That's what we should be. That's not something that's simply required of the preacher or the officers. It should be all of us that were on fire, that were burning for the Lord. Why should we be burning for the Lord? Fervent in spirit. So don't be slothful, be fervent. That, that's some, that kind of sort of captures it. But it doesn't quite paint the picture of this ongoing burning, right? A fire that you can't put out. And then that's the sense of, of the Greek here. Notice the objective reasons for why I should praise the Lord with a glowing heart. <clears throat> Let me root this in truth. For the bliss thy love bestows. For the pardoning, pardoning grace that saves me and the peace that from it flows. I'm praising God with impassioned praise in view of objective things that He has done that have then affected me or should affect me subjectively. That is, here's what God has done and here's how it should touch my soul. I should be compelled to give God a a burning or glowing heart in praise. Why? For the bliss I love bestows David says in Psalm 4-7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. Is is there a sense of bliss in your soul because of what the Lord has done for you? Do you see the love of God bringing you a a deep-seated satisfaction? in the Lord. Not only that, for the bliss I love bestows, but for the pardoning grace that saves me. Ephesians 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Why have I been pardoned? Because you have done it. Your pardoning grace has come to me. So I want to praise you in view of what you've done for me. And then the peace that <clears throat> from it flows. Colossians 1.20, Christ made peace by the blood of the cross. Or Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace. <clears throat> it's a little stronger than that. We are having peace. A present reality. <clears throat> we are having peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Francis Scott Key is recognizing that God has done something. He's poured out His love upon me, and that should lead to my bliss. He's extended pardoning grace to me, and He's given me a status of one at peace with God. And then I exist in a state of peace in my soul. And that's why I should praise Him. And then notice how He really brings us back to a sense of prayer. Help, O God, my weak endeavor, this dull soul to rapture raise. That might be my favorite line to him. Do you ever feel in your soul that you're dull? That your affections are encumbered in some way? That you, you, you know 
that if you come to worship, you're supposed to love the Lord your God. Well, in all of life, you should do this, but in particularly in worship, you should come to worship to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all of your uh, your muchness. That's how Deuteronomy 6 actually puts it. <clears throat> uh, it's translated with all your might, but it's really with all your very, with all your force, I think's the idea. Uh, everything that's in you, you should love the Lord, and yet look at my affections, and they're just dull. Uh, I mean, in a sense, uh, we should be kind of skipping in to the building, not even wanting to sit down. Can we hurry up and get to the part where I get to praise, uh, where I get to sing to the Lord? And this is not, this is an Episcopalian, guys. This is not an emotionalism type of thing. This is not crazy, disordered, running around, falling down in, in the aisles kind of a stuff. This is heavily rooted theology that yet should touch your heart. <clears throat> is that happening in us? If it's not, what do you do? Well, you do what he did. He's praying. Help, O oh God, my weak endeavor and this dull soul to rapture raise. Um, I just preached on Psalm 119.25. This verse came to me as I was thinking about it. It says, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life, or more literally, revive me according to your word. That's what you're asking God to do, if you're, to raise your soul, to lift you up. Revive me, Lord. What, what person of the Godhead brings reviving mercies? The Holy Spirit. So, I need to cry out for the Holy Spirit to revive me. Rouse my soul. That's the sense. Thou must like the flame, never can my love be warm to praise. And again, there's such a recognition of God's sovereignty here, of God's initiating grace. When I come to worship, I'm not just trying to stir myself up, um, pull myself up by my bootstraps, you know, make my affections be what they should be. No, I'm seeking the Lord. He would do this. Lord, you have to light the flame. Or never can my love be warm to praise. This is rooted in a, a number of places in Scripture. Psalm 86.3 comes to mind. Be gracious to me, O Lord. You, I cry all the day. He's looking for God's grace, right? And I'm crying to you to give it. Gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my... <clears throat> you ever feel overtaken by sorrow? David did. How do you deal with it? He prayed, gladden the soul of your servant. What a great prayer. Uh, Come and make me glad in view of what you have done. Or Psalm 119, verse 32. <clears throat> Again, we looked at this a few weeks ago. I will run in the way of your commandments because you enlarge my heart. Again, what a beautiful picture. Uh, the Lord causes the heart. I think when I know when I preached to you, I talked about the Grinch. What does the Lord do with us? He takes our, our wee little heart and He makes it grow. And that's what we're asking God to do. Lord, you, you have to light the flame. You've got to swell my heart 
or never can my love be warm to praise. And then you see this thought process in the Psalms and 1 Kings and Samuel's, uh, Solomon's prayer. Incline my heart to your testimonies. There's a, a word that the, our theological forebears, particularly in the 16th through the 18th century, maybe even the 19th century, would use, and they called it affections. We use the word emotions. <clears throat> and emotions and affections are not quite the same thing. Uh, emotions is it's a pretty new word, actually, uh, kind of emerging sometime in the 1800s, and it's very nonspecific. And frankly, unhelpful, but it's too late to throw it out. <laughs> uh, emotions are... They're fickle. Affections, an affection is to be inclined to something. That's the idea. I want, Jonathan Edwards wrote a famous treatise on religious affections. I want religious affections. I want the Lord to incline my heart to Him and incline me away from things. That's the sense of affections. And preaching should be to your affections, and hymnody should touch your affections. And I think a, a crucial thing that he's getting that's a biblical idea, though some would argue it isn't, I'm very passionate about this point, the Word of God must touch your affections. Jonathan Edwards' treatise in his famous book, Religious Affections, basically argues in the time of the First Great Awakening, we see a lot of people doing a lot of things with their affections, they're responding in different ways. And religious affection isn't necessarily a sign that you're saved. You can have great religious fervor and then prove yourself to be one who walks away from Jesus. But if you don't have religious affections, something's wrong with you and you might not be converted because Christians have religious affections. There's no such thing as dead orthodoxy or what's the, the phrase that's used often of, of us as Presbyterian? We are the frozen chosen. Oh, I abominate that. <clears throat> That should never be us. Uh, and you see it being captured here. This is where our theology leads. Lord, light a flame in my soul. Stir me up. Give me the affections I ought to have. And if I don't have them, I need to cry out to you. What a great prayer. That's just verse 1. I've got to hurry up. <clears throat> verse 2. Praise my soul, the God that sought thee, wretched wanderer far astray found thee lost and kindly brought thee from the paths of death away. Praise with love's devoutest feeling him who saw thy guilt-born fear and the light of hope revealing. Bade, it's an old word, it, it made the blood-stained cross appear. All right, the number of phrases we'll, we'll think about. Praise my soul, the God that sought thee. Notice the, again the emphasis on God's sovereignty. The Lord sought me, right? I was a wretched wanderer far astray. I was, the, <clears throat> I was a prodigal, is kind of the language he's using, from the prodigal son narrative in Luke 15. And you found thee, me, found thee lost and kindly brought thee from the paths of death away. If I were left to go on my own, what would happen to me? <clears throat> What's he saying? Yeah, I, I would have gone astray. And where was my path leading me? To death. But you sought me, you found me, you brought me 
away from that path of death. There's no doubt he's thinking of Luke 15. Um, you remember the, the lost parables, a lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. What man of you having a hundred sheep, Jesus asks, if he has lost one of them, the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And then Luke 15 later on, for this is my son, this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Another hymn you know, maybe coming to mind, um, Amazing Grace uses the same language. And then in the narrative about Zacchaeus being saved, Jesus goes to the spot where Zacchaeus is up in a tree and says, today I must stay at your house. And the word of must is divine necessity. It is divinely necessary for me to be at your house. And then we get this conclusion at the end of that section. And came to seek and to save the lost. The Lord is the seeker. Uh, that, that's what's crucial. And then the second part of the, the hymn, praise with love's devoutest feeling. Again, what passionate language. Love's devoutest feeling. You get a taste, I think, of Psalm 103. Um, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. <clears throat> David's preaching to himself. And he's trying to stir himself up. That's the sense here. Praise with love's devoutest feeling. <clears throat> Praise whom? Well, the Lord. Praise Him who did what? Who saw thy guilt-born fear. I'm guilty. And guilt before a holy God leads to the fear of God. If your conscience is awakened, you saw me in a state of guilt, in a state of fear, and then you did something else. The light of hope revealing. I was shrouded in darkness and you erupted with a light of hope that I don't have to stay in this position of death. And not only did you kind of throw open the curtains to me, <clears throat> you made something very specific appear. You bade the blood-stained cross appear. You made me see the way of hope was in Jesus specifically. That He suffered for my pardon. That He bore my sin and shame. That He rescues me from guilt and fear. 2 Corinthians 4. It's probably in the background. <clears throat> Paul writes, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, who is that? It's the devil. <clears throat> the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. What, how does God deal with the problem of Satan blinding people to the glory of the light of the glory found in Christ. Well, verse 6, For God, who said, light, Let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this is such a beautiful display of God's saving mercy. Why did God, when He created the world, start by simply making it in a, being formless and void and in a state of darkness? You ever thought about that? Why don't you just do it all at once? And more importantly, we know the first command we're going to hear is let there be light, but 
God had actually created the world and left it dark at the very start, before he says, let there be light, why not just turn the lights on right as you create? Because creation was going to serve as a picture to us of new creation. And now we, we tie how the world began to us becoming new creatures. And what was our condition before the Lord said, let there be light, before the Lord turned the lights on? We were in darkness. And we were formless and void. Uh, we had no sense of true purpose. We had no shape to live for the glory of God. And then the Lord, not, not you, you didn't decide to do this. The Lord sovereignly spoke. He, he awakened sinners by His Word. Right? He sovereignly spoke, let there be light in your heart. And when He said, let there be light, what happened? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God was shining specifically in the face of Jesus Christ. That's definitely in the background in this idea, the light of hope revealing. Beautiful poetry. Verse 3. Praise thy Savior God that drew thee to that cross new life to give. Held a blood-sealed pardon to thee. Bade thee look to Him that is to Christ and live. Praise the grace whose threats alarm thee, rouse thee from thy fatal ease. Praise the grace whose promise warmed thee. Praise the grace that whispered peace. Uh, again, a few things to think about. Uh, Ephesians 2 um, talks about what we were as Gentiles who were separated from God's covenant mercies. <clears throat> we were separated from Christ. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's pretty terrible. <clears throat> but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you see what he's saying in the hymn, praise thy Savior God that drew thee. You drew me. John six forty four. no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God's sovereignty. He loves first. He acts first. And then, of course, Jesus says, I will raise him up at the last day. Um, bade thee look to him and live. Jesus says, John 6.40, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. And of course, Numbers 21.9, the serpent episode, <clears throat> the fiery serpent, you remember snakes bit the people. Moses is instructed to make the brazen serpent lifted up in the pole, and if the serpent bit anyone, or a serpent, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Look and live. See where he's getting it from. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. John 3.14 <clears throat> And then, uh, a third thing here, rouse thee from thy fatal ease. So His grace alarmed us in our conscience and, and roused us. Zechariah 12.10 God says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace ESV makes it a small s. Can't know in the Greek and Hebrew, by the way. Um, you don't get this capital letter thing to figure out. Is it a small s or a big s? Yeah, it's context. But here I think it's better. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, He pours out the Holy Spirit of grace and please, sorry, uh, that shouldn't be spelled that way. Uh, please for mercy, so that when they look on me, 
God is saying they look on me, but which person of God are they looking on? Makes it clear. On him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. All three persons of the Trinity are in that verse. <clears throat> the Spirit of grace poured out, looking on the one pierced, but God the Father says that that's me, that it's the God, God is dying for his people, but it's specifically the God man. That's interesting. And then we see this come about. I won't read this. In Acts chapter 2, Peter finishes his preaching. <clears throat> and you remember the people were cut to the heart. Right? So we have this, this idea of your grace alarmed me. You told me of my guilt and my conscience was awakened. And you roused me from my fatal ease. If I continued in that condition, it would have been fatal to me. <clears throat> but you awakened me. And then your promise, your grace warmed me. And your grace whispered peace to me. Christ Himself is our peace. Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 2. He makes peace through the cross. And then this glorious phrase, <clears throat> and He came, Jesus came, and preached peace to you who are far off and to those who are near. Who's the far off people? Gentiles. Who are the near people? The Jews. When did Jesus go to Ephesus? He didn't. So how, how did Christ preach peace to Jew and Gentile in Ephesus? By the preacher sent. How does Christ preach peace to you now? <clears throat> By the, do, you, do you understand why the, we really uphold the preaching of the Word? It's not the man. It's the message. And from whom is the message coming? Jesus. Jesus is addressing you. This is a, a reason to get out of bed on a Sunday morning when it's really cold. You're coming to meet Jesus. If you had an appointment with Jesus, would you stay in the bed? No, you wouldn't. Well, brethren, we do. That's what we're doing in worship. We have an appointment with Christ in the morning and in the evening, by the way. Both times, Jesus is speaking to us. If you want to hear the voice of Jesus, you come to worship and hear it proclaimed. Last verse, I'll be fast here. Lord, this bosom's ardent feeling. He keeps coming back to that feeling language of passion in his soul. Vainly would my lips express. Lo, before thy footstool kneeling, deign thy suppliant's prayer to bless. Let thy love my soul's chief treasure, love's pure flame within me raise. And since words can never measure, let my life show forth thy praise. I'm running out of time. Uh, what he's praying for is don't let me have lips that praise you in a heart far away. <clears throat> I don't want to have vain worship in my soul. Mark 7. Uh, I, I want to bow before your holy footstool, right? Your footstool kneeling. There's a reverence as I approach you, not flippancy. But your love is my soul's chief treasure. David prays, incline your, I, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I'm poor and needy. I'm, I'm coming to seek you. So, Lift me up as you hear my prayer. And then Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you in earth? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion 
forever. And then David has an impassioned statement in Psalm 18 about his love to the Lord. Um, Do we love the Lord with fervency? Little children, this should be First John. Yeah, it is there. I see it now. First John three eighteen. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. First Corinthians four twenty. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. That is the power of a transformed life. Since words can never measure, let my life show forth thy praise. What a great hymn! I wish I could write like that. My kids keep telling me, you can, you should write a hymn. I don't, I don't think so. That's what I, that's what I tell them. That's my excuse anyway. Um, number 80 in your hymn books, if you'll turn there, we're going to stand and sing this glorious hymn. It's a great prayer before we come to worship. <clears throat> Amen. Let me pray for us. Oh God, we pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, even now, would stir our affections that as we come into your courts to give you praise, that you would take our weak endeavor and take our dull souls and lift them to rapture. And we pray that you would light a flame in us as we look to your redemption through our Savior and King, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.